So we've been studying this semester, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And if you want to get together and talk about the Old Testament or about the Bible, why we believe the Bible is uh, trustworthy, reliable, all those sorts of things, I would love to talk to you guys about that. I know that that's not always uh, the perspective you get from all of your classes, and um, I think that's a, a healthy discussion to have. Tonight, we're going to look at the story of Abraham. And uh, this is a great story, really not just one little narrative, but we're going to actually take a broad, a, a kind of a broad um, view and hit several stories to make one overarching point, which is this. The God of the Bible is a pursuing God. Now, this is probably the point in the semester where you're beginning to wonder if you have real friends. Um, you know, because I think for a lot of us, like, the criteria that we really go with is, if I'm sitting home by myself on Friday night, does somebody call me up or text me or message me and invite me to do something? You know, have you ever been, like, in that kind of assess your relationships and you're like, you know, I have all these friends, but the only time we ever hang out is if I pursue them. And man, I would love it if somebody pursued me. That's what we have in the God of the Bible. He pursues from beginning to end in the life of Abraham and thus reveals his character. A character that is revealed even more clearly in Jesus. Matter of fact, there was a time when Jesus was uh, criticized for pursuing people, becoming friends with the kind of people that the Jewish leaders didn't think he should be friends with. You remember this story? It's in Luke 15. Um, you know it by the, the title of the prodigal son. It's really about two sons, and it's in particularly that he tells this story, Luke 15, 1 says, to some Jewish leaders that were trusting in their own righteousness. He told this story. He actually tells three stories. He tells two stories about things that get lost and somebody finds them. The woman with the coin, right? Um, and then there's a party because the person has found the thing that they were missing. The third parable, the one you probably know the best, the prodigal son parable, the prodigal is lost but nobody goes after him. And then at the end of the parable, the older brother, who's the self-righteous one, is mad that the prodigal is being welcomed. And the father pursues that son as well. And the parable ends with you wondering how the older son is going to respond. The point, in other words is Jesus is saying, I am the true older brother. You're criticizing me for eating with sinners and tax collectors. You don't understand who I am, and actually you've forgotten Israel's origin story. Because there's lots of stories about God pursuing people. Do you know where the name Israel comes from? You know? It was this guy Jacob. He's kind of a scoundrel. Did some bad stuff was on the run because his brother was going to kill him. And who shows up? God, in the form of an angel, and wrestles with him. Puts his hip out of joint. He'll be marked by that fight for the rest of his life and changes his name. And Jesus says, here you guys are 
criticizing the poor and the broken, you've forgotten the origin story of Israel. And I'm here to once again remind you of what God is like. That's what this story is about tonight as well. God is a God who pursues. And we're going to commence the story tonight in Genesis chapter 12. Now, as you'll see on the paper, and this is one of the reasons I handed out the the text, we're going to pick up a few verses from several different stories. So sometimes it's good to see a big picture story to see a theme like the one we're going to look at tonight. So we're going to start with Genesis chapter 12. This is where the story of Abraham begins. And the story begins with God. Uh, uh, One of the Puritans, I think, put it this way. God is always previous. All stories actually begin with God. And so does Abraham's here. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now later, chapter 15, the story goes on. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside, and God took Abram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. In other words, spread apart. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Down to verse 17. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared, and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. But what happens in the very next chapter, chapter 16? Well, things kind of fall apart. Abram and his wife come up with a little plan to help God keep his promise. They can't imagine that God is going to be able to bring them a child so they conspire For Abram to sleep with his wife's servant to impregnate her. An abhorrent practice, but the one that was legal 
in that day and that age. 13 years later, 13 years later after that, in chapter 17, God reiterates his promise to Abraham, saying, not only I will give you a son, but I will give you a son by your wife, Sarah. And then God gives him circumcision as a sign of the covenant promise. And Isaac, the son the Lord promised, is born. Seems like everything's going great. Then chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abram. He said to him, this is chapter 22, verse 1, He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, remember he's 13, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? For the burnt offering. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. That kind of took a a crazy turn, didn't it? Well, let's pray together and then uh, consider these stories and um, what it teaches us about God. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would help us. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. We pray, Lord, that we would see the beauty in even the strange and the challenging stories. And we pray to that end you would send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, back to chapter 12. How does the story start? It starts with God. God initiates. It's important to note that Abraham was not looking for God. He didn't have a relationship with God. And 
as the story goes on in places I didn't have a chance to read, twice it's demonstrated very clearly that Abraham was not a good guy. And you probably know this, right? Twice, to save his own neck, he tells somebody, he tells you know, a, a ruler who's a threat to him, that Sarah, his wife, is actually his sister. Which is a way of saying, you can take her and do what you want with her. He gives her up twice. Now God protects her, but her husband doesn't. He's not a good guy. It's not like God is looking out over all the earth and says, that's the guy. He's the one. He's, he's such a great guy full of moral fiber, faithfulness. No, this is a story about God who is the hero, not Abraham, right? But Abraham does go. He goes without much information. It reminds me of Martin Luther's quote that I love so much. I know not where he leads, but well do I know my guide. But at this point, Abram doesn't really know God very much. He hasn't been a worshiper of God. He's hanging out with the Chaldeans. They're not God-fearing people. But he goes based on God's call and God's promise. And it's important to see at this point what he's called to leave. The call to follow God is a call to leave his past behind, his people, his land, and his family. And if there was anything that gave you your sense of identity in the ancient world, it's those things, your people, your land, your family. It's why exile was such a horrible punishment and such uh, a thing that people dreaded beyond almost anything else. To be disconnected from your land was to lose your sense of who you are. But he goes. Now, it, it says that Abraham believes God. Now, it takes a little while, right? It's in chapter 15 that Abraham believes God, but I think it was already starting, already growing. What does it mean that he believed God? I think the best way to think about believing God is to think of it in this way. The future promise comes into the present and drives the way he lives. Maybe you've wondered, what does it mean to believe God? Well, believe Mean, implies that God has said something or done something, and so it is here. As a matter of fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Galatians, says it, says it this way, that the Scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. That's a really interesting phrase, because you're like, well, God doesn't say anything about Jesus in this passage. How can Paul say that the Scripture preach the gospel. Now that's interesting because in Paul's mind, as in the mind of all the biblical writers, if scripture says it, God says it. Those two are equated. In Genesis, God says the words. But does he preach the gospel? For a lot of us, we've grown up and 
preaching the gospel means like the four spiritual laws or the Romans road or telling you know, people you're a sinner, but Jesus died for sinners and now you can have a, a, a better life if you trust in him and so you should pray this prayer or go walk this aisle. That's what we think of when we think of the gospel. But Paul explains in Galatians that the heart of the gospel is the promise of God. And so God preaches the gospel in making a promise. And Abram believes the promise. When it says that Abram believed God, it means he believes the promise. And that future promise breaks into the now and drives the way he lives now. Faith is the ability to interpret the present by the promises of God. It is the future breaking into the now. And and you see a great example of this in chapter 13. Now, I didn't read this. I didn't put it on your paper, but I'll I'll just tell you this little little interesting side story that happens in the Abraham narrative. Um, He's got his nephew, a guy named Lot. You've probably heard of Lot. He's famous, you know, for like the bad thing that he did, right, looking back, uh, or his wife looking back. Um, But Lot and, and Abraham are both pretty wealthy. They have great herds, and they have people that work with them, herdsmen. And eventually, the herdsmen, Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, are kind of getting into a little fight, okay? And Abraham and Lot are like, look, you know, there's actually, we're both trying to kind of live in this land here, and there's just not enough space. So, this, this is what, what happens. Abraham says to Lot, this is verse 8 of chapter 13, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now you might say, okay, that sounds like, you know, very gracious of Abraham. But you know what's fascinating about this? The land that Abraham's talking about. Who lives there? Who lives there? It's occupied. It's not Abraham's land. But he acts like it's his. Why? Because God says, I'm going to give you this land. So for Abraham, it's as good as his. Even though it's filled with with people that are, are bad people, like Sodom and Gomorrah are part of this land that he's looking at and says, It's all it's all mine. God's promised it to me. It's remarkable. He believes God. He assumes the land is his to divide up, even though the Canaanites are still occupying the land. And again, it's because God promised it to him. The promise of God. I don't know if you think enough about, or if I think enough about, the promises of God. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, If we would venture more upon the naked promise of God, we should enter into a world of wonders to which we are as yet strangers. And I wonder if you think very much about the promises of God. Do they affect you? Do they set you free? Do they make you confident like Abraham? Or is it true of you, as the old Puritan John Owen said one time, for the most part we live upon successes, not promises. Unless we see and feel the print of victories, we will not believe. So Abraham's called, he believes God, but it's just the beginning. The next step on the journey, Genesis 15. So in Genesis 15, God reiterates his promise. He comes again 
and says, don't be afraid. I love how often God shows up and he says, don't be afraid. It's actually the thing that angels say most often too, by the way. It's the number one thing angels say when they show up. Um, they're not like touched by an angel and all those silly TV shows. You know, angels are frightening beings. And when God shows up, he often tells people, don't be afraid. Because he's not to be trivialized. But God reiterates his promise. Abraham is struggling to believe. God promises now an heir from Abram's body. You see, back in chapter 12, he basically said, I'm going to bless you and make of you a great nation. And now he gets more specific and says, it's going to be an heir from your own body, but God doesn't explain how that will happen. We kind of hate that, don't we? We want to know what God will do and how. It's often very difficult to trust God at his word if we can't conceive of how it could possibly take place. Are you like that? It's not enough for God to promise. We have to, it has to seem reasonable to us. Isn't that crazy? Like how many times are the promises of God like fulfilled in ways that you never would have imagined? You know, actually, um, if you take all of the New Testament um, places where it says this was done to fulfill the scripture, probably about a third of them, could you say, are a literal fulfillment. Which does push, I think, against the idea that fulfillment of prophecy always has to be literal, not according to the New Testament. And it shows that God is a remarkably creative. I love this verse in Ephesians. Um, Paul says that God is able to do more than we could ask or imagine. There's a lot of creative people in this room with great imaginations, but don't limit God to even what you can imagine. Because who would have imagined not just what he's going to do to Abraham, but what he's going to do with the cross? But the story goes on. Abraham's struggling to believe. He can't understand how is this going to be, God? He has weak faith. Have you ever felt like your faith was weak? Here's the good news. God condescends to help those with weak faith. Look what he does. He doesn't say, Abram, I made a promise and you believe me. Isn't that enough? He doesn't do that. He doesn't shame him. Instead, he says, let's go outside. Look at the stars. God gives him a vivid picture, adds to the promise this picture. Look at the stars, look at the sand. And this is when it says, Abram believes God and it's credited to him as righteousness. Now that's an interesting phrase that the Apostle Paul will pick up on in the book of Romans. And here's what you need to understand. Credited to him as righteousness does not mean Abram earned righteousness because he had faith. It's a very important point to understand about Christianity. So in the New Testament, you find regularly this phrase that we are saved by grace through faith. And there are actually two different Greek words that can be translated into English by the word through. One of them means because, and the other one means, um, well, like what we would say through. Um, so when, uh, did I just mess it up? When it says that we're saved by faith, that word in English can mean because of or through. In Greek, there are two different words. 
by and because, through and because. And so when you see that we're saved by faith, maybe you've had arguments with people. Well, we're saved by faith. That means we need to have faith, like we need to wump it up. That's our part of the bargain that we bring to the table. But the New Testament never says that. Every place where the New Testament says that we're saved by faith, it uses the Greek word for through. Never does it use the Greek word for because. The Bible never says that your faith is the thing that saves you in the sense of it's your part that you contribute. It's better to think of it this way. It's the empty hand through which God pours his blessings. It's not the thing you do. And you see that here. Abram, it says, it's credited to him as righteousness. That means he believes God, and, and it's like God fills his bank account. But he didn't earn it. He believes God, and God fills it. I remember one time I was uh, stopped at an ATM at that Exxon on Broadway. It's close to where my kids went to school. And I remember I needed to get some money out of the ATM inside that Exxon, even though it was like, what, like $6 for a fee, you know because the ATMs and the gas stations are the worst ones to use. But I remember as I'm sitting there waiting, you know, to get my money, I see somebody had left a little slip of paper, like their deposit slip or their, their receipt, you know, from taking out some money, and I just had to look at it. You know I did, right? And, and I remember, like, it was somebody's checking account, and it, it had the balance that was in their checking account. It was over a million dollars. And I thought, my gosh. <laughs> like... Who has a million dollars in their checking account? And then I thought, man, how would my life be different if I had a million dollars in my checking account? But you understand, like, believing God and having righteousness credited to you is better than a million dollars in a bank account. It means that the smile of God has been secured, that you get credit for having done everything God requires from the heart. That's what righteousness does. Righteousness is not just forgiveness. Righteousness is you're beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he required from the heart and you actually meant it. Now, you didn't earn that, but Jesus did. So it's a hint here of of what God is going to provide. All right, so go on. So still, okay, Abraham is still struggling. And so God, God tells him, get some animals and cut them apart. Spread them apart. And I, I think I mentioned this last week, right? It's, it's the ancient version of cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. In other words, if I don't fulfill my part of this covenant, then may it be done to me what's been done to these animals. This was a regular practice in the ancient Middle Eastern world where people would cut a covenant. They would literally cut these animals in half and then they would grab arms and they would walk arm in arm through the pieces and that was how they made their covenant. But that's not what happens. Abraham recognizes the ceremony. God doesn't have to give him specifics. He knows, oh, I need to get animals, we're gonna cut a covenant. I get this, I understand this. But what does God do? God puts him into a deep sleep. And God goes through the pieces by himself. So what does God do? Faced with Abraham's weak faith, he says, look at the stars, look at the sand. And he says, and even one more thing I'll do. I'll put you into a deep sleep 
and I'll go through the pieces by myself. Again, God going above and beyond, condescending to Abraham's weak faith. But then comes a serious derailment in the story, and it's in Genesis 16. Abraham and his wife come up with an idea to, quote-unquote, help God keep his promise of providing a son. As I said, it's an abhorrent practice, but it was a legitimate practice that everybody accepted in the ancient world, right? That if you, in other words, your servant is basically your property, and so if you give your servant to your husband and he impregnates your property, well, then it's basically you that got pregnant legally, right? That's, that's the, basically the custom. And the plan works. The plan works. A son is born, and notice, for 13 years, it seems like everything is fine. How often unbelief can masquerade as faith? It's especially difficult to trust God when he quote-unquote fails to explain how he's going to make good on his promises. And sometimes we feel like we have to take matters into our own hands. And that's what Abram does. And you might think, well, all hope is lost. Or you might think, ah, I'm so glad they were clever enough to figure out how to help God so that, you know, the right outcome could eventually happen. How is God going to respond, though? That's kind of the, 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 the real tension in this narrative. How is God going to respond to unbelief and Abram taking matters literally into his own hands? How will God respond now? And I think this raises the question of, shouldn't Abraham have known better? And I don't know, I talk to students all the time, and I've felt this myself. Like, it's one thing to have sinned before I knew God. But Christians, I know, are always more bothered by the sin they commit after they've come to know God. They just seem like sometimes they have the hardest time forgiving themselves for the sins when they feel they should know better. It's like, well, I didn't know Jesus, so I understand, like, I live, like, kind of crazy. But now I know better. I know the love of Jesus. I know that he died for my sins, and yet I, I did this. I never thought I would do that, but I did it. And what's worse is I should have known better. That's, that's the story we have here. Abram should have known better. God went out of his way to, to reiterate his promise, to give him tangible pictures of his promise, and still he fell into unbelief and made a mess of everything. In Genesis 17, God appears again, and again the first thing he says is, Abraham, do not be afraid. And after chapter 16, that is so sweet to see. God doesn't come and say, oh my gosh, Abram, I can't believe you did that. He doesn't. He comes and he says, don't be afraid. Oh, sorry. I got it. Thank you. Don't be afraid. And then, what does he do? He gives him circumcision. Now, it's one thing to put him into a deep sleep and go through the pieces by yourself. It's another thing to actually give Abraham, a tangible reminder of the promise that he literally can look down and access anytime he wants. Now, what's interesting about circumcision is it wasn't invented 
here. It was actually a cleansing ritual that was done by other surrounding peoples. And if you remember Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In Hebrew, the word seed and the word sperm are the same word. Okay? It's true. So when Genesis 3.15 is talking about, it's talking literally about the seed line of the Messiah. And, and the Old Testament is very concerned with preserving the seed line so that the promise of Genesis 3.15 would come true. And now, what has God done? He's given a cleansing ritual that affects that through which the seed line goes. So if you think that Abram's unbelief is going to spoil or thwart God's promise because it's now brought pollution to the seed line, God institutes a cleansing ritual to say, even your sin can't thwart my ability to bring my promise to bear. It's not a meaningless ritual. It's a cleansing ritual that connects to the promise of the seed line. But then things take a terrible turn. Genesis 22 is one of those really perplexing stories, isn't it? And, and the reason it's perplexing, and the reason it's perplexing to Abraham, is because God has went out of his way to demonstrate that he's not like all the pagan gods. Child sacrifice, particularly sacrificing your firstborn, was a regular practice among the Canaanites. And lots of other peoples. One of the ways that you demonstrated your zeal and your commitment to your God was to sacrifice your future. Your firstborn is your future. And Abraham has come to understand that God is not like those bloodthirsty pagan gods. At least that's what he thought. And then God tests Abram. Now, I, I, I think that what you need to see here, it's much like the story of Job in this. That God knows how Abraham is going to respond. God is never surprised. But Abram doesn't know. When God tests people in the Bible, it's not because he's unsure of what's going to happen. But there are some things that are hard to understand unless you experience them. And I believe that through this, God brings Abraham to an even deeper level of trust. But he has a trust of God even in this. Notice what's interesting, and the book of Hebrews actually reiterates this point. It seems that Abraham believes that God is going to resurrect Isaac from the dead. When he tells his servant, we will return to you. The book of Hebrews says that Abraham realized that since I and Sarah were as good as dead, and God brought life in giving us this son, well, if God did it, then he can do it again. That's what he thinks. Because he believes the promise has to be true. 
But now he can't really figure it out. Oh, he, he seems to have an idea, but now he's not hung up on how is this going to work. Now he trusts God and comes to an even deeper level of trust. You see, it's not just a call to sacrifice his son. I think we read the story, and that's the way we see it. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish tradition, they don't call this story the sacrifice of Isaac. They call it the binding of Isaac. Abraham is being asked to give up not just his son, but his future. And God knows what a big deal it is. Look in verse 2. He says, your son, your only son, whom you love. God is not heartless in this story. He's fully empathetic with what he's asking Abram to do. But what he's asking Abraham to do will bring about an even deeper level of trust in God's provision. Abraham is once again being asked to give up not just his past, now his future. The son of the promise is about to go up in smoke, literally. The call to trust God you see in Abraham's life got progressively more difficult. It's one thing to believe that God is going to bless you, like in chapter 12, that God will be with you if you leave your family and go to a land that God's going to show you. It's a whole other thing to believe, as an old man, God is going to give you a son from your own body. And then it gets even more difficult because God says not just a son from your own body, but a son from you and Sarah, even though you guys are as good as dead. And now God says, trust me, even with that son. But don't you see, that's exactly what life was like for Jesus. The book of Hebrews says this remarkable thing, that Jesus learned obedience by suffering. That's remarkable. Because he didn't have sin, but he still needed to learn in an experiential way more of what it meant to trust God and it got progressively more difficult for him the closer he got to the cross. It did. At one point, Satan tells him, you don't have to go to the cross. This is in the 40 days in the desert. The Satan comes and says, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't. Just fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all, all of this, everything you can see. And Jesus is able to respond to that temptation to not go to the cross by quoting scripture, and the devil flees. Later, one of his best friends, Peter, says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem and die. And what does Jesus have to do this time? He has to say to his best friend, get behind me, Satan. But eventually, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wrestles again. And now he asks his friends to stay awake with him, to pray with him, they fall asleep. He wakes them up and asks them to stay awake with him in this most difficult, trying time as he's facing the cross and they fall asleep again. And the Bible says that as he prays to God, Father, Father, let this cup pass. Do you know what the cup is? It's from the prophet Isaiah. 
where God talks about, I am going to mix up a cup of wrath for my enemies to drink. And Jesus says, I don't want to drink that cup. And as he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says his sweat poured out like great drops of blood. It got more and more difficult for Jesus as he got closer and closer to the cross. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Abraham is being asked to trust God without knowing God's full plan. But at this point, he believes that God is the one who will keep his promise somehow. Now again, you don't want to romanticize Abraham in his faith. But he's grown. This is the way Old Testament narratives often show character by the way people act. They don't often like just say, well, now Abraham was really trusting God and now he's grown in his trust. But you see that walking with God, he's grown in his trust. And he goes to this place, Moriah. Now, do you know this? This is where the Temple Mount ends up being. Right? The place where God provides the lamb in the thicket is the place where the high altar in the Jewish temple is going to be built one day. And Jesus is going to be crucified outside the city gate, but not so far that you couldn't hear on that night that he was crucified the screaming of the lambs as they were slaughtered for Passover. God is going to provide a lamb to die in the place of Isaac. Later, he's going to provide a Passover lamb to die in the place of the firstborn sons of Israel in Egypt. And one day he is providing his own son, the Lord Jesus, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So how can this help us to trust God? We so often think we have a better plan. But the cross proves that God had something in mind that was better than we could ever conceive. Talk about something we never could have imagined. Right? The cross is actually the most glorious display of the wisdom of God. Because in the cross, the justice of God the mercy of God, the power of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God are all seen in the most magnificent way imaginable. The cross joins his justice and a mercy in a way that both are fully satisfied. The cross is not God compromising his justice so that he could forgive people. His justice smiles, as John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said in his hymn, let us love and sing and wonder. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's storehouse. If through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. The only response to the wisdom of God demonstrated at the cross 
is to wonder. Because it's beyond anything we could have imagined and it does everything required. It has power to melt our hearts, not just reconcile us to God, but transform us from people who are suspicious of God into people who praise him for his wisdom. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm so often suspicious of whether God really cares, of whether God really loves. And the cross comes to do battle against my unbelief and against your unbelief. We have to learn to use the cross, the ultimate display of the wisdom and patience and love of God to battle our cynical, suspicious unbelief because God is still battling our unbelief but from the other side of the cross, pointing us to the cross, not just to the stars and to the sand and to circumcision, but to the cross. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray together.